Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this is part 10 of Twin Peaks The Return. Laura is the one. Mm. I think if there's one thing that we really need right now, it's some coffee. (laughs) (laughs) We're very, very tired. (laughs) Yes, they've moved the airings now, so they're no longer at what was actually a pretty unreasonable 2am anyway to an even worse 3.10am, yeah. which means that, uh, yeah, we're a bit knackered, we've just come back from work, and uh, we thought, what better way to spend it than uh, recording a podcast about <laughs> what happened in the most recent episode of Twin Peaks. Mm. So here we are, we're going to try and power through somehow. This might actually be a shorter episode, I don't know. I say that, it's probably going to end up to be twice as long as all the others. But it was kind of an odd, an odd episode, what did you make of part 10? Yeah, it was a strange one. Certainly, now we've rewatched it a couple of times, my view has changed a lot. I think the first time I saw it, it seemed a little bit disjointed. It certainly didn't have the immediate impact that some of the other episodes have had so far. And I think most notably, it just seemed like a prelude to a bigger episode, um, almost like the cold open to a proper hour of Twin Peaks. Not just in length, but in terms of what it was setting up. Because I don't think, for the first time, there was an immediate resolution or even big mystery being established. It was kind of keeping things ticking over. But it seemed a little bit like this was an episode that is designed to get you to the next step rather than be particularly satisfying as an hour of Twin Peaks in itself. But then, you know, watching it again, there are lots of things in it that I like even more. And there are some interesting things going on. And certainly my view of the latter half of the episode has changed a lot on re-watching it. How about you? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like watching a kettle slowly heat up and you're waiting for it to boil. And it's not happening and it's not happening. I, it, it made me feel uneasy. Um, like I said, when we re-watched it, it was interesting how there were elements particularly towards the end almost seemed designed to make you feel uneasy watching it and the first time that we watched it when we finished about 4 10 a.m or whatever it was i felt kind of um not unsatisfied with the episode but but i felt for the first time like when the credits rolled at the roadhouse I didn't feel like I had quite enough to sit back and think about to keep me going for another week. And yet watching it a second time, actually, there is a lot there. It's just there's a lot of plots in motion and none of them resolving. And the water is starting to simmer and you can can see the, the steam coming off a bit. It's not boiled yet. Yeah, I think certainly it has some elements that will probably become very, very important in later hours of Twin Peaks but they seem a little disconnected from the whole narrative until we've seen the whole 18 hours but I think it's also an hour which is leading into potentially the end of the Las Vegas storyline within the next couple of episodes and I think probably also the return of Coop in some form as a result of that and a switch to the main uh, 
plot line or plot lines centering around Twin Peaks itself. Yeah, so shall we crack on with the episode? Let's do that. So the episode begins uh, looking out over the woods and Twin Peaks and it kind of settles in a clearing amongst the trees where there's a trailer, like a kind of a bit of a shack kind of set up there. And this rickety car pulls up. And I couldn't even tell who it was initially, but uh, it kind of it drives up and outsteps Richard Horn, who we haven't seen in a while. Yeah, and who maybe we'd hope we'd never see again. <laughs> <laughs> I think after this episode, I think it's... Yeah, I think a reckoning is coming in for him. But mm. uh, yeah, we'll talk about it a bit uh, later on. I mean, one thing that's notable about this initially was that car is a mess. Yeah. It's like a cut and shut job with parts from all different cars and spray jobs and everything. And I do wonder if this is Jerry's car. Oh, so when he said somebody stole my car, it wasn't just him being high. Somebody actually stole his car. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of odd. I mean, I don't know why else he would have a car like that potentially i mean we've never seen him drive anything else but he was driving the truck and now he can't drive the truck because he killed a child with it mm. um but it just seemed interesting that all of a sudden we have a callback to a car which hasn't been seen and he's a horn and jerry's a horn and something could be going on there yeah so what would that make him his great uncle yeah well if we if, if that's how the lineage works yeah yeah, yeah. so so he t- he turns up at this um sort of caravan and the the external stuff around the caravan is really weird because there are Christmas decorations out and if this is happening in the same time as the other stuff in Twin Peaks is happening then this is supposed to be September but does it look like the Christmas decorations have just never been put away from last year? It does look like that I mean certainly the weather doesn't imply that it's winter No. Or, um, so it's a bit odd but maybe you know she just keeps them up because she's the character we saw a few parts ago uh she was a school teacher she loved pie uh, there was some weird implication about where she was getting her money from maybe mm. um and she was the eyewitness who stared richard in the face when he drove off after the hit and run so we knew that there would be some interaction there and i think we suspected in an earlier episode that maybe at some point she may have been his teacher or something yeah and it's all because you can see these kind of giant candy canes stuck in the lawn. It was almost like, like a sort of mini picket fence around the, the caravan. And there's an angel near the door as well. Yeah, that angel is really odd. It does look a lot like the one that is in the painting in Fire Walk With Me. Mm. I know it's just an angel from the Christmas uh, scene, but it does seem very odd that that's placed front and centre, especially in an episode which is potentially dealing quite heavily with the return of Laura Palmer to things. I think to have it marked by the presence of an angel is kind of interesting in this case. Yeah. So then Miriam tells Richard to go away. She says she's already told the police that she saw him driving the truck, that uh, she doesn't know why he's not arrested. Then she says, oh, I've written him a letter and I've posted it and they, they're going to get it. And if anything happens to me, they'll, they'll know that it's you. But I don't know, has she told the police? Because Andy was following the truck wasn't he when he went to see the farmer we haven't seen Miriam go to the police at all and we haven't seen the farmer anymore either to be honest. <laughs> that's true so I don't know if she was making it up in order to make him go away because she was afraid of him yeah so I think she may have just sent the letter as we find out later on but tried to 
seemed like you know she was in a strong position so if anything happened to her the truth would be revealed yeah yeah and it's particularly creepy when they're speaking to each other because you can see Miriam behind the door and you can see Richard's reflection in the glass of the door as well and there's a lot of scenes in this season which have had that effect you know I think mainly when they've had well the numerous scenes of interrogations happening (laughs) in various prisons and facilities all over the place they've been very careful to place reflections of certain characters over other people and this is a very clear omen that there's this almost um, ethereal Richard Horn kind of hanging there on the glass as she's looking out Um, and to be honest I think you know what's going to happen it's very strange he looks also very young in this episode I thought Mm. he doesn't look as grown up as he did before I don't know what it is but he just seemed a little bit younger this time Um, which probably made everything that happened afterwards even more kind of frightening Um, that bit where he kind of charges against the door he knees in the window um, at the bottom of the door panel and then he barges his way in and then it's an awful scene I think just because it's all shot from the outside and you hear what's going on and again I think that's the power of the sound design in this Mm. uh, season you you kind of hear what looks uh, sorry what sounds like some kind of struggle but it's a very quick one I think you hear like a dull thud sound is that her is that him hitting her or is that him throwing her on the ground and her hitting her head I don't know I, th- I think that watching it again I think there are two there are two sounds I think he hits her with something and then she falls on the ground um, and then as we see afterwards once he's left and we see inside the the caravan um, he's switched the gas on and lit the candle but we don't see the caravan blow up obviously that's what he intended to happen but she's alive on the floor she's clearly breathing even though she's got a nasty head wound another head wound yeah and another head wound which somebody has a potential to survive from yeah because you never see the caravan blow up which could just be a budget issue that they weren't able to blow up the caravan although they did show uh an atomic bomb going off (laughs) so so to be fair i think uh, when he wants to show an explosion he's perfectly happy to do it (laughs) But the other thing that you pointed out the first time we watched it is that he smashed the glass in on the door. So is the gas even going to build up inside? Is it not just going to get out? Yeah, he may just not have reckoned that when he kind of left. It might have been part of his plan. You know, that's what he thought to do. But it seems odd. And I do wonder if we haven't seen the last of her yet because, you know, they've left it a bit unresolved. And I think there's more to this story certainly you know it's yeah there's something still missing here um with regard to what miriam's storyline is going to be about so then we move to the new fat trout trailer park it's very difficult to say (laughs) where carl is sitting outside playing the guitar uh, playing red river valley and there are a number of red things around in the scene there's a red uh it's like a mini refrigerator or something yeah one of those cool boxes yeah there's a red coffee cup that gets hurled out of a window. And then if you look at the coffee cup on the ground, in the background you can see a really bright red garden rake as well by the looks of it. Yeah, it's the first of many red objects in this episode. Yeah. I mean, it's all, you know, I think they've always been present, but it's kind of notable how many things there are that are floating around. And, you know, you get a sense that 
again they're building all this imagery up for some reason um but even that is, is kind of unclear at the moment what's the sign that he's got outside his place in the trailer park yeah so i paused it and i stared at it <laughs> and so it is the opening hours i think of his like manager's office so it's clear that he's still the manager of mm. the fat trout trailer park this is the new one which has been relocated to twin peaks and we had that weird mystery over how the telephone pole moved as well we'll leave that but interestingly i think it says like 9 30 to 5 30 but there's something i can't read the words but it's something before and i wonder if it says something akin to his original message which he had in fire walk with me which is you know do not disturb before 9 30 which is of course what sam and chet do and kind of face his ire a little bit um but yeah it's really cool to see him just sitting there playing the guitar because essentially he then becomes one of the twin peaks musical guests mm. for a little bit um it's kind of nice it's kind of he's a very you know, he's a fantastic actor but it's a nice serene moment only to have it broken immediately afterwards by the coffee cup and there's one thing which i thought was really cool which is a, an interview which i remember reading and i i just dug it up just now which is from 2014 which is when mark frost was interviewed by buzzfeed and they said what is the one thing that fans can expect from the revival if we can talk in very broad terms and this is before it all come together and he said hmm one thing i can guarantee they will see they will see a cup of coffee fly through a window <laughs> just to give you one mundane specific. And it's mm. interesting that they actually included that. Yeah. Uh, but of course, that was uh, back in the days when it was a nine hour thing. And this is hour 10. So, you know, <laughs> clearly it's all gone haywire. Yeah. And then we get the second horrible thing happening inside a trailer of the episode so far. And we're not even 10 minutes in yet. Uh, so the coffee cup has been hurled out of the window, presumably uh, by Stephen. And him and Becky are fighting inside the trailer. Although Becky's mostly cowering and Stephen is ranting and raving and screaming about how she doesn't make enough money, the place isn't clean enough, um, just generally being a run-of-the-mill douchebag towards her, basically. And then he says something really odd, like, don't give me that innocent look, I know what you did, I know what you did. But we don't really know what that means. Yeah, it's a weird scene because, so I think Carl's reaction to it implies that this has been going on for a while, these mm. arguments he's hearing. And it's really weird that when you are seeing the scene at the very beginning from outside the trailer, before you know who's inside, Stephen sounds almost like he's growling inside. It's very gruff and angry, but you couldn't tell who it is until you see them. And when you see him, he's like a dog. He's like, got snot dripping from his nose he's clearly completely high as well but there's just anger in his face and it's very upsetting to watch but it's also uh like the first of many very upsetting things that happens in this episode it's kind of a mm. theme that runs through it and it's very tough seeing becky kind of cowering like saying she tries to kind of push back but his physical presence is just too much and yet he's completely incoherent as well so it's unclear exactly what he's talking about but you get a very serious leo vibe off him mm. even the thing about you know clean you know keeping the trailer clean and things which is it's like when leo had shelly cleaning the floors and everything he's you know there's this weird 
feeling that you know this is happening again in a weird kind of way but i think initially whereas it was easy to see her as the laura kind of character now there's even more of her seeming like the shelley from mm. this and it's very sad now to see the cycle repeating itself because clearly shelley has matured a lot and she sees these problems but she almost seems unable to pull becky out of the situation as well mm. It did make me think a little bit about who Becky's father is. Obviously, she's Becky Burnett in the credits. That doesn't help. We haven't seen Shelley around anyone other than being in the diner in the roadhouse with her friends. So it's a mystery. Although even if Shelley is with someone now, that's not necessarily who Becky's dad is. I mean, do you think it could be Bobby? I think it could be. I can almost see a situation where Bobby could be the father. But then they split up and now he's a deputy in the sheriff's uh, department. But I can also see, given they did so much with Bobby in the previous episode, where they're building him up as potentially somebody on a redemptive arc as well. And somebody who is starting to see the uh, things that his father, Major Briggs, told him start to come true. I do wonder if he is going to become and step up to being the father figure that he that may be lacking. Hmm. I can see that arc taking place. And even if he's not Becky's father, I can see him maybe stepping in if ever there was a situation that was exposed as a crime to the outward world. Because this is all being, you know, it's like abuse which is hidden behind the facade of being in the trailer park. But maybe that's another thing. Maybe it'd be interesting if, uh, you know, as we originally wanted, James takes out Richard Horn. And uh, Bobby takes out uh, Stephen <laughs> in some kind of weird bookhouse boy smackdown. <laughs> so one thing I would add before we move on is two things I've been thinking about with the Becky side of things. Mm. One is, do you think that now Becky is kind of being portrayed as somebody having a really hard life in the trailer park? Initially, we thought, oh, she's very much like Laura. But do you think that this aspect of her life makes her seem a little bit more like Teresa Banks who was there as well yeah I guess so because she was at the previous fat trout trailer park wasn't she um, it's odd because she, she feels like a bit of a mixture of Laura and Shelley and Teresa mm. now so I'm not really sure where she's going mm. but of, of the three of them only one of them didn't have a tragic ending so we can only <laughs> hope that she ends up more like her mum than uh Although Shelley might be doing something with Red, so we don't know. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And the second thing I thought was really odd, and I don't really know what it means, if it's relevant at all, is in the closing credits, uh, Becky is credited as Rebecca Becky Burnett. With Becky in uh, brackets. Which is odd, because I think they've always called her Becky. I don't know why they've suddenly switched it to Rebecca. I can't recall Stephen, for example, calling her Rebecca. But it's mm. odd that they would change that at this point. I don't know what that means. But uh, I thought, hmm, there's an observation. That's right, because I don't remember anyone actually referring to her as Rebecca in this or previously either. Hmm. Yeah, and then we're back to Las Vegas and with the Mitchum brothers, who we haven't seen in a while. And Mitchum A, I shall call him, <laughs> is, is sitting around looking at his surveillance logs. Yeah, Robert Nepo Mitchum. Yeah. And Candy, one of the three women in the pink satin outfits who, who hang around with them all the time, she comes in trying to kill a fly and she's flicking a red handkerchief at it, which doesn't seem like the most effective way that you can try and kill a fly, to be honest. 
and after a few misses she drops it and she picks up a remote control and tries to cover fly with it but the fly has landed on uh, Mitchum and she smacks him in the face by accident. Yeah, it's a very kind of Looney Tunes style setup. This whole thing. You can you can see how it's all gonna play out, I suppose. And it's got that kind of absurdist humour that you see in sort of scenes in Mulholland Drive. In the midst of a of a criminal element, you always see these weird things happening. And they're always coupled, especially if the violence is meant to be treated as somewhat farcical. Mm. There's always extreme hysteria afterwards. Um, but it's very interesting, I think, her reaction to everything. So, you know, she's very focused on this fly, but then her initial responses, I don't know, what do you think? They, you know, they seem like she's obviously shocked at what she's done. Mm. You know, potentially like a fear of, you know, that, you know, blood or something like that, which has happened. But immediately she's um, hysterical and apologetic and worried about what she's done to him. There's, yeah. a, there's a tremendous fear about how she's affected him. How do you think all that works? In the, you know, in terms of the nature of the relationship that must exist <laughs> between the Mitchum brothers and these three kind of showgirl-like characters who are part of their harem or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she's completely distraught about it. But I I never get the impression that she's worried for her own safety. Because very immediately, both M- Mitch and B runs in, and both Mitch and A and Mitch and B start trying to uh, say, it's all right, don't worry about it, we're fine. Clearly happened before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't get the impression that she feels afraid. Um, I think it's more that she just feels genuinely terrible. Mm. that she's accidentally smacked someone in the face and it's telling that it's coming off of two scenes of very remorseless horrible violence directed at somebody um by perpetrators who have no concern over what they're doing and then you have immediately followed by somebody who accidentally hurt someone it's not even hurt that badly uh, and is distraught about it, and and feels terrible about it. it. It's just a, it's an extreme opposite, in a way, um, as if the, the the extreme opposite of that kind of remorseless violence is to feel so overwhelmingly terrible that you start crying and screaming, and that the extreme opposite of really brutal, uncomfortable to watch violence is slapstick. That is just, that is kind of played for laughs, really. And I think I completely agree. And also the fact that the I suppose one thing you might expect if this was following any kind of trope would be if these Mitchum brothers were really kind of brutal gangstery kind of people, they would retaliate. That's mm. what you might expect to happen. But it's interesting that they don't. The fact that they're kind of sympathetic to her as well. They're kind of trying to help her calm down a little bit because they know that to them they think that she's overreacting as well yeah but they understand it comes from a place of genuine compassion and i think i suppose i meant sort of like worrying about what she's done mm. as if what she's done is a permanent thing um yeah it's a it's an interesting scene but again it's that marrying of violence and slapstick but like you say contrasting it with what's come before in the opening scenes of this episode 
Yeah, I think it needed a release valve after how horrible those first two sequences were. So staying in Las Vegas, but moving back to Dougie, who we haven't seen in a while, actually, um, we are at the appointment that Janie said she was going to take Dougie to uh, when she was speaking to Bushnell and Bushnell said, you take the day off after the interaction with the Fusco detectives. Um, and she was, I think, planning to take him there to get him checked out. There was all the implication that he had some kind of problems and she was going to take him there. So this is that day now. They're at uh, the, uh, the doctor's surgery. The doctor, Dr. Ben, played by uh, John Billingsley, who played uh, Dr. Flox in Enterprise. Yeah, so this is the same day that Dougie stared at the red shoes in the police uh, department. It's the same day that Bushner was interviewed and told them they could take the day off. It's the same day that the Fusco friends nabbed Ike the Spike. Um, it's, it's all still that day in Las Vegas, which is important later on. So she finally takes him to the doctor and it's taken her this long to realise he hasn't just lost a little bit of weight. He's lost a huge amount of weight. If you remember what Dougie looked like when he got pulled into the Black Lodge. And I guess it's, I suppose, symptomatic of people who've been in a relationship for such an incredibly long time that they just don't notice stuff anymore. She just hasn't noticed that he's about half the size that he was. Uh, she noticed that his suit was different, and that his suit didn't fit him anymore. Uh, but she hasn't actually really properly looked at him until he's standing in the doctor's office. Yeah, it's strange, because at first I thought, well, she's been, well, she must have been helping him get dressed every day. But you're right, maybe she just didn't observe it until it was in this setting. Um, and certainly it was funny, because I'm, I'm not sure what kind of doctor Dr. Ben is, <laughs> but it's odd that essentially there's no attempt to do any kind of, you know, examination of his kind of, Brain Cogn function or yeah. cognitive function that's the, very, that's the phrase I'm looking for It's very odd, he just seems completely Overwhelmed by the appearance of Dougie Because he must have seen him so many times And he's more, you know Concerned by that And certainly it's very odd, this is what A, a nearing 60 Carl McLaughlin <laughs> Who's uh, suddenly turned up Like like somebody half that age Who's been to the gym for ages Yeah. And uh, what's notable about it is I think it's very odd that he lacks both his bullet wounds from when Josie shot him at yeah. the end of season one and also the scar that would have come from uh, Wyndham Earl sta uh, stabbing him. Yeah so way back in the events before the series happened um, back when he was stabbed when Carolyn, Carolyn died. Yeah because he must have some kind of scars I mean you don't get shot and not have a scar surely but it's notable showing him like that when the last time we saw mr c he was a mess yeah you know those yeah. scars still stained it's almost like they're showing you know the two different coopers here and that's actually another really important point in this episode it, is it the first one that we haven't seen mr c i think it is because we don't see diane either uh, she's spoken about but mr c we only see him in that one photograph later on so it's very odd that, that there are things happening here which are I think shifting to try and wrap up this story a little bit, the Dougie one. And one other observation about this scene is going back to those bits where Dougie seems to be attracted to certain things like the badge, shoes, things like that. It's notable that he's attracted to the stethoscope. The only reason it jumped out was it's obviously 
listening to his heartbeat and I kind of thought back to that bit where Diane was talking to Cole and was talking about Mr. C and saying there was something missing here and indicating there was something wrong inside in his heart or spirit. Hmm. So then we're back with the Mitchum brothers and it's that evening and they're watching the local news and on the news report uh, there's a kind of a cheesy intro where they roll some I, I guess this is a Las Vegas news program so they roll some dice to decide what uh, news story they're going to run and it's local news and it shows you footage from the arrest of Ike the Spike and then following that it says oh and he was uh, wanted in connection with the attempted murder of this local businessman and then you get the footage that you saw um, being weirdly interspersed with the show in the aftermath of Ike actually trying to kill him so when it goes into the bit where you you feel like the camera is a news camera and it's talking to people and you see parts of the same interviews and of course this means that the Mitchum brothers see Dougie Jones square on television and realised that the name Jones wasn't just uh, somebody taking the piss with what the name was. He was actually named Jones. What do you think was up with that number 12? The only reason I mentioned that is because when we saw Carl, I think the number on his trailer was 21. Yes. It probably means nothing. but <laughs> So it, it looked like this kind of big red button that they pushed to decide what news story is going to be next. And it has 12 on it. So I couldn't tell if they were they channel 12. But then the channel seemed to be CQK, whatever. Uh, so I, I didn't understand what the, what the point of the 12 was, but it was really obvious right at the front of the screen. Yeah, I think we're just looking at all the numbers all the time and going yeah. crazy. And anything red. There was a red lamp as well, a giant red lamp in, in the shot. What I did like was the uh, byline underneath Dougie when you see him on screen in Janie. And it says, Underworld hitman arrested. Local hero nabs him. <laughs> Which, I mean, he didn't nab him. The police nabbed him, but I kind of see what they mean. And there's no mention of that, his palm being removed as well. <laughs> no. no. I think what's cool about that scene as well is after they have realised that, you know, Dougie Jones is Mr. Jackpots, all the same thing, it's all, it's all becoming clear. We can see that there's something that's building now with a real confrontation. We still see Candy there, still fraught with emotion after what she's done inconsolable almost I think mm. um, one of the other two showgirls whether it was Sandy or Mandy I don't know kind of brings her a drink and tries to console her and it's weird there's I think you're right it goes it goes back to the idea that she is so um, full of remorse that she can't bring herself to move on even even questioning whether uh, Robert Nepper's character can ever love her again it's like such a huge thing which i think you're right is in tremendous contrast to how we've seen a lot of the male characters in this episode do things without any remorse at all towards female characters it's a it's a very notable thing that she's being used to represent this in this way so then we go back to dougie and janie e, and first we get an establishing shot of the house with the red door then inside you get a close-up of Janie's feet in red shoes and the camera pans up and you're sitting in a red chair. It's just red everywhere, basically. And she's clearly trying to 
seduced Dougie a little bit, but he's just eating a piece of chocolate cake, which I assume is Sonny Jim's birthday cake still. Yeah, that's a bit weird because it has been a while, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. But he's sitting, unless he just likes chocolate cake. <laughs> but he's sitting there just nonchalantly eating it, and then every time she she talks to him, he kind of doesn't respond. He just carries on eating his cake in a very kind of deliberate kind of fashion. So anyway, they end up upstairs for a quick shag and it all gets very loud and Sonny Jim wakes up uh, and then they uh, curl up under a red duvet and it has to be very deliberate choice. I mean certainly the shoes must have been a very deliberate mm. choice um, because of the whole red shoes thing last time out. I think it's interesting because also now again evolving the character of Janie as well we've suddenly moved on so far to see potentially this is like their this could actually be their relationship starting to rebuild itself almost it's unclear how things have happened in the past and certainly there was an implication that given that Dougie is first seen with a prostitute that maybe their marriage was on the rocks anyway and there was all these problems with his gambling and drinking that they allude to so now we're thinking okay maybe this is the it could just be the the thing that we see before things are about to turn sour. Suddenly, you know, certainly Dale Cooper was never lucky with the women he was attracted to. You know, Caroline murdered Annie, abducted and possibly dead or something. I don't know what happened. Turned into Caroline at some point. <laughs> uh, you know, all these things keep happening to him. And I think it's interesting that now he seems kind of almost like he has this almost too perfect family life it's almost like a quantum leap thing where he's gone in and mm. assumed the identity and righted the things that once went wrong in Dougie Jones's life but what does it say about Dougie and Janie's relationship before this that having a, a, a barely responsive man hanging around is a massive step up from whatever <laughs> it was that they had before <laughs> I mean, it must be terrible, must yeah. But I think there was an implication that maybe she was kind of looking after him a little bit as well. She looked out for him. Clearly, that wasn't how their relationship started, but she stuck with him. And I think it almost goes back to what you were saying when they were in the doctor's office. I think they've grown accustomed to each other, but they may have kind of fallen out of love. And so now it's it's very different. But I think it is a bit... I mean, there is also this difficult undercurrent that comes with this which is the fact that you know he's not fully of sound mind mm. um so there are probably questions of consent that come into the whole thing as well but i think we're not meant to take that as the message away from this no and also the fact that he's not dougie that's true and no amount of weight loss is going to make anyone <laughs> think you know what maybe maybe my husband maybe during this three days he disappeared Maybe he got sucked into uh, an alternate dimension and an FBI agent from uh, 1990 came back in his place. <laughs> Although if knowledge had actually ever happened, it would have been a case of Twin Peaks The Return being about Dale Cooper trying to find the White Lodge and Dougie Jones trying to find the White Castle. <laughs> mm, white Castle. So then it's been a while, but we return <laughs> to the woods... And it must be Friday night. What the date is, critically, we do not know. <laughs> but it's time for another show with Dr. Amp, who has returned. Yes. 
and his number one fan Nadine <laughs> who is watching him once again and again yeah he just gives one of these slightly crazy paranoid rants railing against the government big pharma <laughs> and all this stuff about you know privatization of life you know the uh intervention that the government is making in every aspect of um like our own free will and personal choices and again then he offers people the opportunity to buy one of his golden shovels <laughs> to dig themselves out of the shit he did make one very odd comment though when he was talking about um rubbish food covered in sugar being fed to people's kids it says, oh, why don't these, you know, corporate oligarchs would ever eat it? Because they would die in the street. And he says something about how they would, like, blow up and explode like red balloons. Mm. Which we haven't seen a red balloon in a while. But now now we've got another one, which is, uh, better get one more notch on my little countdown to uh, see if we get 99 of them. <laughs> I think what's nice as well is that I was a bit uncertain of it before, but Nadine clearly does have a shop now yeah. which is selling her silent drape runners which is strange because it was always like this kind of wacky kooky idea that she had and i think big ed let her run with it a little bit just to kind of keep her sane um but at the same time there was never any indication that it would take off and it's interesting that well two things one big ed is not around here we mm -hmm. haven't seen him yet we haven't seen him at home but you can almost imagine a situation where he just is still married to her but just stays at the garage doing stuff letting her kind of run this business but also she does doesn't she say like you're so attractive or something about uh yeah well, he's Doctor. so beautiful he's so beautiful yeah. and i wonder if you know again maybe she's so lost in this world now that she's just stuck in front of these doctor amp shows running her shop quite happily yeah but, but you see you see the front of her shop and the window display is a load of drapes going around and around and it's going around one of his golden shovels which she's got as the centrepiece of, of her which shop is a, display which is probably the kind of thing which you can imagine big ed would be so pissed off about <laughs> that he just want, would want to be just out of that place completely to see her subscribing to this nonsense yeah. although to be honest eight hours from now maybe it won't be nonsense <laughs> And the shop number is 112. Yeah, so this whole thing with the numbers is a bit funny just almost within this episode. We've had 21 on Carl Rod's place. 12 was on the screen uh, when the Mitchums are watching the news. Now we have 112. And I'm pretty certain that later on we can check it. But um, the hotel room that Cole is in is, I think, 1123. So all the numbers are kind of similar. What it means, I have no idea. Mm. But of course, the best thing about her shop is the name which is run silent run drapes <laughs> have you uh have you got any uh alternative uh puns that you could uh throw in there yeah, i think i think there are some there's some options what would you go with i i don't know i thought maybe silence of the drapes silence of the draping good i thought i thought silent running uh you know yeah does the job yeah all the drapes are wrath <laughs> I'm thinking of drape puns now. Yeah, I thought maybe Planet of the Drapes. <laughs> I would shop there. If actually, you know, what I do. I'd open a rival one called War of the Planet of the Drapes, <laughs> or Battle for the Planet of the Drapes, or Beneath yeah. the Planet of the Drapes. There's loads of them. 
Yeah, and if it, if it went out of business and then came back, it'd be returned to the planet of the Drakes. <laughs> I don't think people listening to this podcast to hear Drake puns. I think they do. <laughs> fight, fight, fight. Our one listener can't be wrong. <laughs> right, so, get back on track. <laughs> then, we go back to the world of Dougie Jones. Yeah, so it's now the next morning... Um, because they're getting Sunny Jim off to school and she's going to drop Dougie off at work. And this is important because if you remember the previous episode when Bushnell had been talking to the cops, to the Fusco friends. Fusco, Fusco, Fusco. <laughs> and Mitchum, Mitchum. Yeah. And then uh, he comes outside and he gives Dougie the rest of the day off. And he says, tomorrow you and me are going to sit down and figure out what's going on. Which means... Ne- this morning as they're leaving, tomorrow. is tomorrow this morning when they're leaving the house this is the day that when he gets dropped off at work by Jane Yee Bushnell is in theory going to be ready to try and solve what the hell's going on because Bushnell obviously thinks that somebody's out to kill Dougie which to be fair they are um, but not necessarily for the reasons why he might expect so I want to remember this because I think that Things happen that we don't see, or things are starting to become out of order. Yeah, because we do return to Las Vegas, but we critically see things which might be related to what happens during this day, but we critically don't see the day itself. Yeah. So then we cut back to the woods for a very quick look at what Jerry Horn's up to. (laughs) It's not a lot. He still appears very high. But I think it's becoming more and more apparent. I don't know how much time has passed here, at least for him. But something is going on, I think. He's in the woods. Uh, what kind of things is he talking about? He's shouting. He's got no reception on his phone. And he's like shouting at some existent or non-existent person or being that may be there. You can't fool me. I've been here before. Yeah. So either he's just walking around in circles or something has happened and he's been somewhere. He's been places. Yeah, <laughs> um, and now he just wants to stay where he is, which is easier now because uh, his foot has got its own character. Yeah, and his car's been stolen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so again, this is just building up. It could go Doctor Amp and be nothing, but it could be critical because I wonder if you know when he's going to get found. He's going to get found by Hawk and Bobby and Frank Truman when they're uh... looking for Jack Rabbit's palace. Yeah. I think yeah. they're going to come across him and that's going to tie to where he's been. So then we're back to the sheriff station and Chad was tasked with a, a little mission earlier on by Richard Horn. After Richard apparently killed Miriam, he called Chad to get him to intercept the letter that he believes was on its way to the sheriff station. So this seems to be the next day from then on as well. Um, because they're expecting the letter to arrive. Yeah, it was sent that day, wasn't it? Yeah. According to, according to Miriam. And if it's only going to the same town, it would arrive the next day, you would think. So um, Chad is the single most suspicious person in the world <laughs> when trying to be nonchalant. <laughs> he may as well have been whistling when he walked <laughs> into the room. do 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 I'm just going to go click the post. <laughs> <laughs> And Lucy is totally suspicious. She's totally suspicious that he's even hanging around because he's clearly such a Chad. 
that he wouldn't normally do such yeah, a thing. Yeah, he's the kind of person who, if he starts being nice to you, you immediately question everything he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> so he's trying to go out and get the post handed to him by the um, mailman so that he can go through and intercept the letter. But the thing is, Lucy, she's ditzy, but she's not stupid. And when Chad moses outside to enjoy this fine day, uh, she watches him through the window because he's being totally suspicious. And I, does she see him uh, push the letter into his shirt? I wasn't sure from the angle. I don't know. I think she thinks he's tampered with the mail somehow. And I think this is going to come back in some way. I wasn't clear just looking at it whether she saw him keep something. I think she would have questioned it in some way or done something or they would have shown her doing something to the mail afterwards to imply that she was checking if something was missing. Yeah. But it, it kind of reminds me of way back, it may have been the pilot episode where Mike and Bobby are talking to each other and Lucy can overhear them. So she types what they were saying mm. and then gives it to Truman. Um, because, you know, she comes across as a, a very comic figure, but she's not a, she's not a stupid character. And when she thinks that somebody's up to no good, she does have her own little sneaky, sneaky way of, of trying to uh, figure out what they're doing. Also, what do you think about her little speech she gives about time? She's talking about, you know, Andy and not knowing what the time is and all yeah. this business. So Chad is trying to make small talk and he's the worst small talk maker in the world because he's being so dodgy. And he says, oh, I bet you and Andy wake up every morning and they go, oh, it's such a wonderful day today. And she says, well, it depends how much time we have. Sometimes we don't have time to think about anything. We just have to get up. And then she tells this story or starts to tell it about one time when the clock had stopped. And then they realised they didn't know what time it was and it felt like forever. And then before she can finish the story, the mailman arrives and Chad bounces out in order to try and intercept it. But it was a really weird story because it reminded me in some ways of that speech she gave about the thermostat, about what what is happening if you're not there to observe it. What is the thermostat doing if nobody's there to see if it's if it's on? And is time moving if the clock is stopped and you don't know what the time is? If you don't know what the time is, then are you experiencing time? I don't know. I think I think her little. Um, kind of segues into these bizarre kind of daydreams are important somehow and I think they're important in terms of trying to make sense of how the story is being presented to us. And one other thing about how things might be happening time-wise and this is a completely out there suggestion but Andy is not in the back. We've last seen them talking about the chair that they were thinking about Yeah, and that struck me as a bit strange because obviously he was investigating what happened with a hit and run and yet all of a sudden now he's worrying about what chair they're going to buy yeah now what seems possible is that they're showing the same shot but andy's not in the back so do you think that what's happening now is that andy has gone to the farm to meet with that guy who owns the truck is that where the timeline is is going now so he's gone to find the owner because he knows that it's been uh, involved in the hit and run which would fit with the fact that Miriam did say that she'd spoken to the sheriff so maybe they do know that 
something is going on. Yeah, because that scene where he goes to speak to the farmer and then waits for him later on, there was nothing to anchor that into a particular day or to connect it necessarily to the other scenes that were going on around it. So it could be that that is somehow out of sequence with this. And it would fit with the fact that if the hit and run happened, the investigation would start relatively soon after they got a tip. And the tip may have come from Mir- Miriam, which is why he's gone. Mm. But Chad doesn't realise, and Chad's back at the uh, sheriff's station, intercepting the letter the next day. So something could be happening there. Yeah. But the other thing is, is that the letter? Because he's looking at the sender address and very conveniently putting his thumb over the postmark so you can't see what the day is. And he sees one that's the sender is from Miriam, but the surname is different to the Miriam that's in the credits. Mm. One of them is Hodges and the other one is... Is it Williams or something? Sullivan. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Um, so in the credits, she is Miriam Sullivan. And in the send address on the letter, it says Miriam Hodges. Do you think she would have changed the name so no one would know who it was from? So if somebody intercepted it, they would know it's not from her until they opened it, which would mean that the letter would it would have been protected. Yeah. The weird thing is, though, didn't she say that she sent it to... Did she say that she sent it to Sheriff Truman? Yeah. But the letter was addressed to the sheriff's station. It wasn't addressed to a particular person. But also, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that there is a letter. I I wonder if she was making that up in order to try and get Richard Horn to go away. That if, if he thought that she'd already sent the letter and therefore the police would know that it was him responsible if anything happened to her, that would somehow scare him off and he would leave. Obviously it didn't work. But I didn't find her entirely convincing when she was telling him that she'd already posted it and all this stuff. And I wonder if by some bizarre coincidence another letter from someone called Miriam arrived that day and now Chad is going to get undone by stealing a letter that actually has nothing to do with anything and he's going to have to give Richard Horn up, which could, you know, potentially end badly for Chad. <laughs> which, how do you feel about that? I don't know. <laughs> Should things end badly for Chad? Hmm. <laughs> also, I think, you know, do you think that the letter has gone to the right Truman? Oh, so are we sure how long... Frank Truman has been sheriff uh, and how long Harry Truman has been ill because if she doesn't know that Harry isn't the sheriff anymore, could she have sent the letter to Harry instead? I don't know I mean it could have been a personal letter, we don't know um, we don't know if she knew him personally and if it was if there is a letter that she sent, she may have known to send it securely rather than generally via the sheriff station, I don't know but there's something that could play out here to add to the confusion over you know, what the ultimate fate of Chad and Richard is going to be. Yeah, I, I I have this image in my head of, you know, in one or two parts time, Chad getting hauled out and asked, uh, what have you got stuck in your shirt there? And he pulls out a letter and it's from a completely different Miriam and inside there's just like a crayon drawing saying, thank you policeman for saving my cat from a tree or something like that. It's got nothing to do with anything. And you know what? I think he's going to get hauled into the bookhouse. Mm. And he's going to be intimidated and he's going to be forced to reveal this letter. <laughs> Which is going to lead them to Richard Horn, but also potentially Red, maybe. Mm. And speak of the devil, we're back with Richard Horn again because we uh, haven't seen enough of him this time. And he's on his way to see Sylvia, 
who we haven't seen yet. Well, we, we've heard her um, in the background when Johnny ran into the wall. Uh, but now we get to see her. She's at home with Johnny. And Johnny is, is basically tied to a chair and covered in every um, soft cushioning available to try and stop him hurting himself, I guess. And he's sitting in front of the strangest teddy bear oh, ever. That that that's wrong. That thing. Yeah, it's a it's straight out of it's like a a real version of the thing that David Lynch put in Dumbland, and it's and it's basically um, what saying hello Johnny, how are you today, yeah. over and over again, which is strange in itself, but it takes on a particular dark tone, I suppose, as um, the next events unfold. So we see Richard uh, driving up to Sylvia's house. So this is like a gated community, isn't it? Because you can hear a security guard probably at the front of the whole complex saying, you know, are your grandson's on his way. Yeah. Um, and so Sylvia knows he's coming. She comes to the door, threatens him, tells him not to come in. But that first he doesn't stop him. And also it's clear that he's on a mission to get something out of this. Yeah, so he wants money because he's decided that he needs to skip town uh, before he gets arrested. And she doesn't want to give him any more money. She says, oh, go and go and speak to your grandfather. He won't give you any more either. And the way he keeps calling her grandma is kind of odd. Yeah, it's strange, I think, because... So obviously there's this idea now that the one horn we haven't seen is Audrey... And Richard could really be Audrey's son. Yeah. But it's notable that when Sylvia says, you know, speak to your grandfather, that seems like a very definite moment where Ben is definitely Richard's grandfather. But the grandma use is more, um, it's more like a taunting that he's using he's not saying grandmother or nan or something i'm not saying he would use those words but he says it in a very obvious slightly stilted fashion that implies that he is not actually potentially her grandson does that make sense yeah and he says something about how she always wanted him to get out of town um and now now he will which suggests i mean it, we we discussed weeks ago the possibility of who his parents might be so obviously Audrey is the most likely but there's also the possibility that Donna uh, is his mum and that he took the surname Horn after his grandfather yeah. if Ben Horn is Donna's father obviously we haven't seen Donna either and we're not expecting to and it would therefore make sense if Sylvia wanted him gone because it's a reminder of the fact that you know, years before that, Ben had had an affair and Donna was his daughter and had been living in the same town this whole time. And it would also make sense of the, the slightly sarcastic tone that he had when he calls hmm. her grandma. And I think, you know, there's something there's something not right here. I think it is going to be interesting to see how it does play out. But um, I'm still not 100% convinced it's Audrey. And yeah, basically as the music, which is, I think I last heard it in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, is playing, we are exposed to not only some of the most brutal violence that we've seen, but probably the most unsettling violence 
that we've seen in Twin Peaks so far. It's, um, you know, we see Richard assaulting Sylvia, threatening to do the same to Johnny as well. It's undercut by the fact that Johnny, although restrained, he looks quite big and he Mm. clearly is a little bit away from being able to break those restraints and and do some damage you kind of wish he would but also it's it's troubling to see how he's forced to watch this happen but he can't do anything about it which is just how us as viewers are forced to view the whole thing as well it's deeply unpleasant you wish you could step in and do something but you can't and to watch richard assault sylvia and kind of use the language he uses as well it's a very disturbing thing to watch it just seems to be so aggressive and evil you know he he literally would probably almost kill his own grandmother it's a weird it's a weird thing to watch and it's very dark yeah. and certainly you know they're not they're not playing this as you know him being like crazy psychotic um, like Tarantino style violence this is deep unpleasant Twin Peaksy violence that kind of uh, embedded violence that exists underneath the surface of what would seemingly be a normal family life yeah, and then he literally steals the family silver and off he goes So then we're back in Las Vegas and importantly it's night time again. So it feels like this is now the closing of another day and we're with Todd and Todd is talking to Sinclair which is a connection that we haven't seen before and they talk about the fact that the Mitchum brothers are Mr Todd's nemeses and that he and Sinclair had conspired to make sure that they were denied an insurance claim uh, at some point that was very valuable so we obviously know that Todd and Sinclair are in cahoots with each other and whatever's going on and they both also need Dougie gone Todd because he's been told to by Mr C and Sinclair because he now suspects that Dougie is on to him so what Mr Todd tells Sinclair is that he should go to the Mitchum brothers and tell them that the whole thing about the denied claim was Dougie's doing and that he had a vendetta against the Mitchum brothers and that hopefully that should see the Mitchum brothers take care of Dougie and take care of the whole problem. So one question, how do you think this scene ties in to the one in part nine when Mr C made the phone call to Mr Todd saying, you know, I want you to take care of the situation once and for all? So I think that initially... Todd was still expecting Ike to take care of it and then Mr Todd has just found out that Ike has been arrested and this is kind of weird because we saw the Mitchum brothers see it on TV the previous night Uh, they saw the the arrest on the news so why Todd is now only just hearing about it from his assistant I'm not sure because it now seems to be the following night has it taken them a whole day to find out that Ike got arrested? It must be a concern for them because Ike could presumably name who it was who, who hired him. And it also gives them an additional problem of how to get rid of um, how to get rid of Dougie. 
And the other important thing is that we now seem to have gone through this whole day in Las Vegas where we saw Dougie Coop and Janie leaving their house in the morning and now we see Mr Todd's office at night. And this is the day when Dougie Coop and Bushnell were meant to sit down and work things out and we haven't seen any of it. We haven't seen anything that happened in the office that day. And then, Albert, it's happening! <laughs> yeah, I think after last week, pretty much everybody watching the show really, really wanted Constance and Albert to get together. And it's happening. We see them on a, a little romantic date in the restaurant of the hotel. Yeah, not to uh, dampen the excitement. But what I was watching when that happened was the woman who walked past holding a French flag, but also a bouquet of flowers that looks very similar to the one that Denise put on the chair next to Cole. Red roses with white lilies in it. Looks something like that, yeah. Mm. I was like, hmm. And she does very prominently walk across camera in front of where they're sitting. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I don't know what it means. But yeah, Constance and Albert. <laughs> and they're being watched by uh, Gordon Cole and Tammy Preston, who I think it's implied by this are clearly having some kind of relationship as well now. Yeah, because when they leave, Gordon has his arm around Tammy's waist, doesn't he? Yeah, they're having some kind of flirty conversation as they're watching, and then they kind of disappear. Uh, which probably also is what was going on when um, Cole called Albert when he was uh, in the car trying to get to Diane and said he was <laughs> going to have you know a bottle of Bordeaux or something. You could hear a woman in the background. It must have been Tammy. Yeah. Somewhere in the FBI headquarters, Denise Bryson is shaking her head, saying, <laughs> I knew it, I bloody knew it. <laughs> so then we're back with Mitchum A and Mitchum B, and they're in the control room at the, the Silver Mustang Casino, and Candy, Mandy, and Sandy. Sandy are kind of standing around, dazed by the wall, uh, as we saw them when they first appeared a few parts ago. And Sinclair turns up, and somebody mentions that it's now gone midnight so we think this this must still be the same night after Sinclair has been sent by Todd to yeah. go and talk to them they see Sinclair in the CCTV on the casino floor and they recognise him as being from the insurance company, they wonder what he's doing there they send Candy to go and get him why didn't they always send Candy to do stuff? I don't know. It was kind of odd, especially if she was still in a complete state. Yeah. But now she just seemed completely spaced out. Um, and doesn't really seem to, to hear what they say. And then eventually she just kind of very slowly wanders off to get them. And then you see on the CCTV, when she's actually with Sinclair down on the casino floor, she's pointing at things, she's chatting about God knows what. And they're just getting more and more irate about the fact that... She isn't just bringing him back like she's supposed to. And, I mean, you can't tell what it is they're talking about, but she seems to be pointing at different areas of the casino. It's, it's all it's all very strange. I did like the fact that, you know, watching all these things play out on that CCTV camera and watching uh, Robert Nefer and Jim Belushi watching it, I think there's an element of this fourth wall thing where it's like the people watching this waiting for something to happen, waiting for things to keep moving. And yet it's stalled by the fact that a character is just floating around, pointing at things, potentially just in a complete daze. Mm. And we're all just being forced to move at the same pace as well. But we want it to kind of speed up a little bit. Yeah. So I'm intrigued as to how this fits in the timeline with everything else. Right. We know that this is after she hits him with the remote control because he's got the mark on his cheek. 
We were also come to know that it must be after they've seen the local news, which seems to have been the previous night, because they now already have a clue who Dougie Jones is. And it must also be after the scene between Sinclair and Mr Todd, which seems to put this one whole 24-hour period on from the previous night when they were watching the local news. And yet, whatever's happening in Buckhorn, as we will see in a few minutes, it still seems to to still be the same day as it was in part nine yeah because they reference them speaking with hastings earlier that day yeah and albert says diane got this text message this morning yeah so time is not moving at the same rate in all these different places as as it's being shown to us it can't possibly be yeah so certainly although the timelines are moving around yeah i think you're you're right the the different plot strands are moving at different paces as well yeah, so eventually she brings him up to the control room and he goes into his whole spiel about how uh, Douglas Jones was responsible for everything that's, that's gone wrong, for denying their insurance claim, for having a personal vendetta against them. Uh, e- even when he's he's basically being pushed out of the room, he's like, you have an enemy in Douglas Jones. Very weird, his delivery here. It's like he's channeling Al Pacino <laughs> or, a, or a really bad impression of Al Pacino here. And the whole thing is being played out like some weird faux mob drama, but it lacks the gravitas. It's kind of teetering on the edge of farce the whole time. Yeah, because Sinclair is such a kind of a loser figure, really. Um, he's clearly completely in over his head and he's just improvising uh, in, in, in a fairly bad way. <laughs> and even the Mitchum brothers, they have lost their kind of threatening edge here. They seem a little bit pathetic as well. Yeah, they don't really know how to run this criminal organisation. I'm not even sure how big it is outside of this casino. I think certainly when you see Mr Todd, you realise that there are very serious competitors around who are their real antagonists. Yeah, because they, when they're talking about Candy, doesn't one of them say, oh, we can't fire her because she would have nowhere else to go or something mm. like that? They, they don't seem that ruthless. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's basically pure luck on Sinclair's part that they already have it in for Dougie. Yeah. Because they've seen him on the news. They know he's Mr. Jackpots. They reckon he's already taken them for 400 grand because they don't believe it could possibly have been chance that he won all that money. I'm not sure that he would have been able to sell that performance to them <laughs> if they hadn't already thought, oh, it's this... Uh, this Dougie Jones character that we keep hearing about. One else. <laughs> and one thing that is kind of funny about that whole scene as well is the music in the background. And I couldn't place it until you pointed it out. You know, I knew we heard it before, but I think it's the music that plays at the end of season two when Doc Hayward comes home to find Ben Horn there. Hmm. And just before they had that sort of mini altercation and he gets pushed into the fireplace and kind of bangs his head. There's those, it's that same music that's playing. I don't know why it's happening again here, but um, it's nice to have a, you know, a reworked version of a previous Badalamenti score here. Hmm. And then the Mitchums go home again and they're plotting what they're going to do about this situation because they now reckon that Dougie has taken them for 30 million, 400 grand. <laughs> and I, I don't know why, but they get the phrase, the phrase, fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me they get it completely wrong they get it completely the wrong way around and then there's a little 
you're dead. <laughs> it's, it's like the least threatening mobster ever. I think they are turning out to be kind of weird villains in this. I think it just shows that in Las Vegas, anyone can assume the role of a gangster, <laughs> but very few people actually are, well, deserving's not the right word, but uh, have actually earned that level of intimidation. It's interesting that they're so out there all the time doing this stuff, whereas somebody who's clearly more powerful like Mr. Todd is hidden away in some tower block somewhere, sending minions out to do these tasks. Mm. But I have to say, in their house, uh, or flat or whatever, they do have the best drinks cabinet around. They do, it's a very good drinks cabinet. But one thing I have thought, which is potentially you know, interesting, about that scene where Candy is talking on the CCTV screen to, um, what's his face? Sinclair. Oh, about the air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still don't understand what it's about, but I did think, you know, does this tie, given that we see him in the episode as well, to Mr. Todd? Because, you know, we have that scene where Mr. Todd hands Roger the money and says, tell her she has the job. And we all thought it was Lorraine he was talking about. Oh, I mean, she got the job to sort out the hit. Yeah, but what if that actually refers to Candy? Because Candy's tone changes quite a lot in this scene. Yeah. And I do wonder if maybe she has been planted there. Maybe she's actually giving some information to Sinclair. Maybe she's got, like, such a close relationship to... Uh, the Mitchums that she can be used as a kind of a spy for uh, for Mr. Todd. Mm. It would explain her weird behaviour. But not the weird behaviour of the other two. <laughs> so then we're back in South Dakota where Gordon Cole is in his hotel room, room number 1123. So we're mm. seeing these strange combinations of the same numbers popping up again. And he's sitting at a table with a large glass of red wine drawing something on a piece of paper yeah what is it? it looks like a dog made out of a tree with um branches for horns yeah and a hand reaching down towards it yeah um, and there's something is that a watch on the arm i don't really know it's like a, or some kind of bracelet or something with yeah something on it the weird thing is there's a stack of pages and they're bulldog clipped together but the first page the top page has been torn off because you can see the torn corner of it still under the bulldog clip and also on the table next to him is some weird red object as well, which we couldn't make out. Yeah, some rectangular gizmo. I don't, I don't know what that is. But it's very. It's the same kind of red that we keep seeing again and again. And then there's a knock at the door. Mm. So Cole opens the door and at first he sees a vision of Laura Palmer as she appeared in Fire Walk With Me when she turned up at Donna's house. Yeah crying and asking Donna if she was her best friend it's very very weird it's very unsettling watching that because it's like a jump cut to see that scene and I don't really understand what it's about it kind of flips between his perspective and kind of looking into the room as well Mm. Uh, so you see like a reversal of the image in kind of ghostly silhouette form as well but I have no idea what is really going on here I mean I know that we've discussed it before, but there's a lot of links between Cole and potentially the Blue Rose cases that stretch back quite a long way. In this case, there's a specific link to the Laura Palmer case. And although he was aware of Cooper's involvement in this case and his investigation, he didn't ever seem to be close to it in any in any way. And certainly there was never an indication that he had visions or any kind of powers that implied that he could see things like this. So this must be, I think, a 
vision which is being presented to him. I've been thinking about this all day, and this is a bit of an out there kind of wacky theory. If you think of the specific scene that it's taken from, when Laura, she she turns up at Donna's house, asking, are you you my best friend? She's distraught. And basically she, she hates herself because of the way that she feels anything's happened to her. And she fears that Donna wouldn't be her friend if she knew the truth about everything. And you'll have to bear with me on this, but I think that deep down, Gordon and Albert are best friends. Potentially some of like the only kind of long-term friends that either of them have got. There's some weird stuff that's that's happened. I mean, we've already established that Albert has given information to Philip Jeffries to help Coop a long time ago that then turned out to get somebody killed. And I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some secret between them where the the revelation of that secret there's a fear on one or both parts that it would end their friendship i don't know it's it's a bit of a crazy theory but no i think i think there's something to it because you know although we see these shots of laura that dissolve it's almost like a veil that's appearing over albert who's at the door and it just seems like it must be somehow tied to albert himself but yeah it does striker the fact that maybe Albert is mixed up in something which he shouldn't be and that this is Laura delivering a message to Cole in some way I don't know how but there's something about a very serious link which is being established between Laura and Albert in some way she knows something about him and I'm starting to wonder if kind of linked to what you're saying although Cole is observing all of his other agents you know he's keeping his eye on Tammy he's keeping his eye on Diane all these different things maybe the person he's most worried about is Albert and that's why he's lulled him into the sense that he's his confidant on this but he's actually the guy who is um, being watched the other weird thing is that Cole doesn't say anything to Albert about the fact that he's just seen this yeah I mean, he seems perturbed by it when it happens, but he doesn't mention it. He do, he does to either Albert or to Tammy yeah, that we he know hear, of. Yeah, I mean, he hears Laura's name and he sees her face, but all he then focuses on as being unusual and very important is that picture. Yeah. So Albert's obviously cut short his date with uh, Constance, which is a shame, and he's come to deliver to Gordon the fact that Diane received a text message that morning And it's the one that we saw last time around the dinner table, the conversation is lively. So as I was saying earlier, this puts the events that we're seeing now in Buckhorn on the same calendar day as Buckhorn in part nine. And yet things in Las Vegas have now moved on two full days. So things are not moving at the same time. Also, Cole turns his hearing aid up so they can whisper as they did when they were talking about blue rose and doesn't get any bluer and they they now suspect that Diane is involved in something the message appears to have come from a server in Mexico and they're going to keep Diane close and basically keep an eye on her um, Gordon says something about how he felt that something wasn't right when Diane hugged him when they were in Yankton prison I'm, I'm not sure what he meant by that 
I mean, I don't know because he he didn't hug her back properly, but maybe he felt that this was an overtly emotional response from somebody who is usually quite distant, or has become quite distant. It's unclear, but there's something that I don't know. I can't make it out yet, but. I think Cole has everyone under surveillance of some kind at the moment as he's trying to piece things together. The person he really needs to help is Cooper. Mm. Cooper's the one person I think he could, who he could genuinely trust and who can see through this. But I am getting very, very worried for the motivations of Albert as well in all of this. Mm. I don't think he's telling the truth a lot of the time. And I do wonder you know, what his angle is and everything certainly how he fits into the bigger mythology here like you were saying earlier so before we watched part 10 we actually went back and watched part 7 because why not and there's an interesting moment where Gordon and Albert have gone to see Diane in her home and they're trying to convince her to come with them to South Dakota and when Gordon is trying to convince Diane he says something odd he says it involves something that you know about then he glances at Albert and then back to Diane and he carries on and the less said about that the better and it struck me as really odd at the time but now that we've seen that Diane's getting these weird text messages and we're not really sure who she is involved with what side she's on what what her, her role is in the game I wonder if Cole knew that Diane knew something did Diane know that Cole knew that Diane knew something but they all knew that Albert didn't know and Cole is trying to get across to Diane that he knows something about her but don't say anything because Albert doesn't know does that make sense? yeah kind of I think it goes back to that idea that he he knows a lot about everything that's going on but it's almost like none of it is confirmed Mm. so he's trying to fish for the information by allowing his agents to kind of go about their own business but he's keeping very close tabs on them to see what they're going to do and I think that is starting to tie up with what we're seeing now and certainly I think it supports the idea that Diane is not doing anything directly bad I think if anything she might be on a secret mission from Cole in some way to do something, maybe she's there to try and get information or something, I, I don't really know And what could be really happening here is that maybe one interpretation of this message is that Evil Cooper is sending a message to Diane to try and get access to the coordinates that he so dearly wants. So maybe he can't get them from Ray because Ray's disappeared. And maybe his backup plan was to get it from the source, who is Hastings, who has access to that information or might know some more about it. So by going to the site, maybe they can get access to the body because maybe Ruth's body is still in the zone or the lodge or whatever it actually is. Or maybe it's that mauve zone, which is kind of an intermediate one. We don't really know. It could just all be tied to Coop's mission to get the coordinates by any means necessary. In this case, it could be manipulating Diane in some way. But again, I'm not sure how much Diane is really in cahoots with uh, Evil Cooper. So then we see, for some reason in slow motion, Tammy walking round the corner very dramatically. Yeah, down the corridor where Gordon saw the vision of Laura. Yeah. And as she approaches the door, what's really odd is something funky happens to the 
keycard door handle on it. It seems to kind of flicker in some bizarre way. I don't know what that's about. I wasn't sure at first whether it's just her shadow casting across a shiny surface, but it looks weird. Something funny happens to it. Yeah, it looks like some kind of visual glitch, but an intentional one. Yeah. But she comes in to give her usual Tammy Preston update, delivered in the most bonkers way possible. <laughs> Uh, with strange enunciations of everything. Yeah, but is, is she is she just trying to badly disguise the fact that she and Cole I, are alive? I'm starting to think that. Yeah, yeah. There's something weird. She's trying to remain professional and just doesn't work at all. <laughs> yeah, because because clearly they don't want Albert to know. Um. So is she is she just generally feeling very awkward because she doesn't know how to behave when there's other people who aren't aware that they're in a relationship? It's either that or. Before she turned up, or before Albert showed up, she was actually in the room. <laughs> she's she's knock out the and she, kind of, and she kind of legged it around the outside, <laughs> and she kind of casually walks back in, pretending that she wasn't there in the first place. Um, I don't know, um, but yeah, she turns up and she has a picture, and this is one of the pictures from one of the cards that was recovered from the New York site where the glass box was found, and we haven't gone back to that in a very very long time. Mm. I think it was. Uh, part three when we last saw something about it at the end of the episode when it was announced halfway through seeing that creature that could have been the mother experiment thing um that was interrupted by the apparent reappearance of cooper yeah and of course that was the scene that gave rise to a uh, hundred different edits on youtube of gordon reacting to various <laughs> things we put on the screen the what the hell memes <laughs> in this picture it looks like it's taken from inside the room with the glass box mm. and it's cooper standing there Bad Cooper. Bad Cooper talking to somebody. Now, the bad Cooper who's there is not wearing his kind of snakeskin shirt and leather jacket. He looks like he's wearing like a like a buttoned-up Nehru collar-style black jacket or suit or something. It's unclear. I think they're both in front of the box. Mm. But the person he's talking to looks slightly raised up and they're holding on to something. I'm not sure. That, like, are they wearing like a... A coat or something. Yeah, it's like like a, a sort of big grey overcoat or trench coat or something. Yeah, and the dude is bald. Yeah. He may or may not have a beard. Yeah, it, it might be stubble or it might just be the lighting, but you can't get a good look at his face really. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we were kind of like had our noses pressed up against the screen, screen trying to work out who it was. It could be anyone. Um, I don't think it's somebody who we've met before. Potentially, he seemed quite of a you know somebody with a very big frame. I think. But it was unclear. But he did seem slightly raised up. And mm. what I was wondering is, is this as somebody who has maybe come out of the box? You know, is there like a set of steps next to it? So if you come out of the box, you can actually get out. Because remember, you can, when, when Cooper went in, he phased through the glass, didn't mm. he? So maybe you can phase out of the glass in order to enter the room. And maybe Cooper was there to meet this person who had been travelling through the boxes as well. I don't know. Because they, they didn't look necessarily like they were dressed in modern day dress. Yeah. It could have been someone from another time. Yeah, so so maybe the purpose in in the box was to open a, a link, not necessarily just to the to the Black Lodge, but it could, it could be to any if if there are other dimensions or something like that, as we saw with all that stuff with Hastings uh, last week. Do you think this ties to that phone call though in part two, where the person who may or may not be Philip Jeffrey said, "I missed you in New York." Is this is this what was going on? Um, I think so much. Of, un of the key to understanding all this is understanding what the hell Philip Jeffries is doing and who that was on mm. the phone if it's not him yeah I think it's 
Maybe it's Bad Cooper's the billionaire. I'm still not sure. That I don't he think is. it is. If he was a billionaire, would he really have people like Mr. Todd hiring Ike the Spike to go and kill Dougie? Yeah, it doesn't seem right. You'd, you'd have an entire hit squad of your own, wouldn't you? It, it, it feels odd. His his patterns of behaviour and the way he goes about doing things, it doesn't feel like he's got a billion quid scrolled away in the bank. It just feels strange. But he must be connected to it in some way if he's there. But it, is he there to meet someone who has come through some kind of rift into the box from a lodge or maybe a time traveller? But if this was the box where the mother experiment thing turned out from remember this is in the past and bob would have been in bad coop yeah so this could have been a motivation of bob in some way the one thing i thought was interesting about this box was it reminded me in a strange way of the episode where leland is finally caught in season two yeah because one part of me is wondering is this some ruse being orchestrated by philip jeffries to pretend he's working with Evil Coop to get him near to the box so he can actually put him back into the box. Mm. So we know that it works in the out direction. So you can leave one of these things or be sent out by the doppelganger of the evolution of the arm. But maybe the ruse is to get Evil Cooper close enough that you can push him back in, just like did the switcheroo with uh, Mm. Ben Horn and Leland, where you get him close, you pretend he's like there to observe something and then you get him back in there's something weird about what's going on with that box and i i think that everything we're seeing at the moment is hard to interpret because we don't know the motivations of anyone we don't really know what evil coop whilst inhabited with bob um sort of what he was doing for the last 25 odd years and like you were saying i think it all boils down to what role this philip jeffrey's or Philip Jeffrey's like character is playing in this whole mythology. They're clearly very important. We still have no idea what, what happened in Argentina with that funny box and mm. things like that. There's something going on. And I think all of that must be key to understanding it. So now that Cole and company know, or the FBI, I suppose we should call them. Cole and company. <laughs> uh, now that they know that the New York crime scene is a Blue Rose case and is connected to everything that's going on with Bad Coop. Do you think that we'll go back there or go in and look at the box again or that they're going to try and get their hands on the box and, and find out what was going on? I think something's going to return to that whole thing. Um, did they ever say whether the box was destroyed? No, I, th- I think... Although that thing comes out of it and you hear, I think, I think you do hear the sound of glass smashing don't you yeah it's clear that it's existing in its own reality anyway and it doesn't seem that's the case because they say that well actually i think there are pictures of the box intact so you never know what it's like afterwards yeah but there's no evidence that something ever broke out of it um, so maybe the box still functions and they will return to that so then we pick up on the uh, aftermath of richard horn's attack on sylvia so sylvia calls ben at the great northern i think it's clear now that they're living apart possibly divorced or in the process of getting divorced because sylvia references getting her lawyer and she explains what's happened and she is obviously very angry and wants her money back and wants some compensation from ben as well again this adds to the fact that it seems like richard horn is more ben's responsibility than hers which is why again i think it's tied more to donna than it is to audrey i don't know but there's something funny about that and 
you know, Ben is very concerned for Johnny. Maybe fitting with the fact that they are about to get divorced, he's more concerned for his son than he is for his soon-to-be ex-wife, maybe. Um, and he just looks completely exasperated with this. But it's a strange response. You wouldn't be kind of like, oh, not again, if that happened. And certainly they must know, certainly Sylvia knows what Richard is capable of. Mm. It's very strange, this response that Ben has. Um, unless this is a new thing, but I don't think it is. Uh, because there's a reference to Ben giving him money before, etc. So I don't know if Ben sees Richard as a problem which he can use money to, to make disappear in some way. But at the end, he does have this funny thing where he, uh, with his head in his hands, asks Beverly... Um, if she wants to go for dinner with him, which means that maybe <laughs> yeah, he's given up trying to be a good man yeah. after all this. <laughs> so then in a very nice surprise, actually, after all of this, we have the return of Catherine Coulson as the log lady. So we haven't seen her since part two, where she delivered two wonderful scenes which actually gave those episodes their titles as well and she's on speakerphone to hawk very much like the second time she called hawk um in those episodes as well and she gives a very interesting monologue given direct to camera i do wonder if this if this might be the last thing she says i don't know yeah it's said we've we've seen her three times now and on all three occasions she spoke the line that gave the episode its title which means three out of ten titles have all come from her so far. So it, it seems like her, her importance is, is very much there, even though she isn't present that much in the story. Um, obviously, she's still very important in the world of Twin Peaks. And she gives this beautiful monologue, and, and Hawk doesn't say anything, um, but he appears very moved by what she's saying. So she says, Hawk, electricity is humming. You hear it in the mountains and rivers. You see it dance among the seas and stars and glowing around the moon. But in these days the glow is dying. What will be in the dark that remains? The Truman brothers are both true men. They are your brothers. And the others, the good ones, who have been with you. Now the circle is almost complete. Watch and listen to the dream of time and space. It all comes out now flowing like a river. That which is and is not. Hawk, Laura is the one. Wowzers. <laughs> Yeah, so this is, uh, well, the final bit, especially not only the episode title, but it directly refers to one of the Log Lady intros. Uh, so I think the one on the pilot episode where she says, it is a story of many but begins with one and I knew her. The one leading to the many is Laura Palmer. Laura is the one. And we know that David Lynch has such a tremendous affection for the character of Laura as well. And she's clearly being positioned to be critical to everything that's happening in, in The Return. Certainly the speech is, in, is foreshadowing what we think the trip which Hawk is going to make to the lodges, probably the Black Lodge, if this scene actually precedes what happened when he went there on his own. Um, it probably also ties to the fact it mentions the other characters, the team of people who are going to venture to Jack Rabbit's palace, which will probably turn over a whole new set of mysteries as well. But I think more than anything, it sums up quite nicely the mythology of this whole arc as well. 
this idea that there is a world that is inherently good but inherently complicated by the evil that exists within it and that evil is permeating every aspect of it the electricity is always associated with the lodge-like activities and clearly that's growing in power so i think it's kind of interesting that all of a sudden there's a reference to the light going out or starting to go out and how this can be prevented in some way maybe but i I also wondered if that was a metaphor for her feeling that she's dying yeah i think so i think it works on it works on many many levels um i think you're right i think i i think in some respects i kind of don't want to believe that because i think it's very sad to think about that being part of it but I think you're right. Well, Lynch and Frost are both doing lots of things about mortality in this season. And I think that's also directly relevant here to that as well. Yeah, so when she refers to the Truman brothers are both true men, is that effectively kind of anointing the fact that Frank can stand in for Harry in terms of this circle of people who I think are intended to be reunited together? Hmm. And if we're not going to get Harry, then Frank fulfills the same role. It's like a, it's like Slayer blood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Hawk, one of or both of the Dreaming Brothers, um, maybe Bobby now is he now one of the the good people who have who have been with him throughout this and is now part of it. I'm going to guess and say probably not Chad. No, probably not. Probably not. But is when she says the circle is almost complete, is it Cooper who is missing? Yeah. Um, and what on earth are they going to do to try and get him back? Well, I think we can see now how everything is really moving in this direction now. It's like we said, very, well, at the very beginning of this episode, that I think the Las Vegas events are going to resolve in the next couple of episodes. And I worry that actually they may resolve in a way which snaps cooper out of things potentially in quite an unpleasant way which i which is that i can see his happy life which is being established now with janie and um sunny jim potentially ending in a unpleasant way for both those two characters i can see them both potentially being killed in the crossfire of some big ruckus involving something bad happening at the Lucky 7 insurance company um, involving the Mitchums potentially the return of Hutch and Chantal lots of different things happening and at the same time I also see bad Coop making his way here as well and maybe you know having good Cooper back in Twin Peaks is not enough maybe you need bad Cooper there as well yeah I don't know I'm wondering I'm genuinely starting to wonder that that Cooper's not coming back good cooper isn't coming back that we're not going to see him again i know everybody desperately wants to see him again but i do wonder if we're not going to see him again and that if the 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 kind of happy ever after that he gets is that he stays dougie and he stays in las vegas with Janie and sunny jim (laughs) and has this bizarre little life where he doesn't know what the hell's going on but everything seems fine or maybe they're going to witness protection after the mobsters (laughs) come after them or something i don't know but then how would you fit in that very first scene with him talking to the giant or the fireman? Because I always felt that that is him 
having almost travelled through time in some way. He's seen all these things. He knows what all these things mean. Yeah. Um, you know, his his very determined, I understand. That was that was the Cooper we know, but a kind of battle-hardened Cooper. But you're right, maybe that happens at the very end. Maybe he's only ever back to himself when both him and bad Cooper are back in the lodge again. Maybe they're reunited there, but they can't leave again. You know, maybe that's the problem when you enter and you split into two people and you face your shadow self, etc. Maybe they don't just go back together again in some way, but maybe they can coexist like some of the other characters we see in the lodge environments, but not in the real world. So then for the first time in a little while, we have a, well, what can almost be construed as a canonical ending for uh, an episode of The Return, which is a return to the roadhouse. And this time we have Rebecca Del Rio playing on stage, uh, singing a song called No Stars, which runs for a good five, six minutes at the end of the episode. Yeah. Which is already a very short episode as well by uh, Twin Peaks standards. In the background, we have Moby playing. <laughs> he looked like Moby. It was Moby. Yeah, it do look like Moby. Um, but it's a very, very strange scene. So I think... Unlike the other ones, although it's a proper performance, it does seem like, firstly, she's miming. Yeah. Which is odd. Secondly, parts of it seem very auto-tuned as well. Yeah, noticeably so. Um, which seems unnecessary because the singer herself is an extraordinarily good singer. Yeah. So there must be a reason why they've done this. Yeah, so she was notable for being in Mulholland Drive singing uh, a version of Crying in Spanish. But there, in the Club Silencio, the whole reasoning behind that scene was to have that dude saying, you know, uh, hi, no banda, there is no band, and how what you were thinking you were seeing was not actually what you were seeing. It was just an illusion that was being presented to you. And it's weird that she's doing the same thing here. Yeah, because she she is noticeably miming. Yeah. And the auto-tune on the voice, I don't know if that's intended to also give away the fact that she's not singing or to make people listening feel uncomfortable. Auto-tune voices make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't really like listening to auto-tune songs, so I can't listen to the radio anymore because <laughs> I have to stuff on there bloody auto-tune. There's something unnerving about it. And there's something unnerving about this performance um, because as you say, it's it's not matching up with the, what we're seeing. It's not quite quite matching up with what we're hearing. And so while our brain is telling us this person is singing, we also know on a, another level that that's not what we're seeing. And the fact that they've done this with the singer from Club Silencio, I think can't be a coincidence. And I think more than ever for a scene in the roadhouse, this really feels like as was happening with the Nine Inch Nails in Part 8, there's a strong sense of the Roadhouse being strongly linked to the Red Room. So we see you know, her dress has the same floor chevron pattern, which is an odd thing to have in the real world. Mm. The red curtains behind, you know, there's kind of a haze around that seems like it's you know, set in the Red Room. It seems almost like a... Um, musical performance from the original series when it was kind of quite smoky in there and yeah. quite hazy and i think what this ending really made me think of was 
the end of season two, episode seven. So the one where Maddie gets killed. Mm-hmm. It's that scene when the log lady has said there are owls in the roadhouse and they all go there to see and where everyone starts crying when they listen to the Julie Cruz song. And this really evokes that same feeling. But then the giant appears and delivers the message to Cooper, who's the only one who can detect it, saying it is happening again. It is happening again. And then when it resumes, I think it's in the middle of The World Spins by Julie Cruz. And actually the the closing refrain of that very closely matches the closing refrain of the No Stars song Mm. as well. I think it's meant to evoke exactly the same feeling. And I do wonder if what we're seeing is the same thing as before. So whereas before the giant was there to warn Cooper it is happening again and Maddie was being killed is something happening during this scene that we are not seeing maybe because Cooper is not there to see it there's something funny about it it just feels like something is happening here and we're just not able to detect it which is why we're being forced to hang on this slightly jarring almost deceptive uh, performance yeah it feels like the lodge is creeping into the real world that as you say with the dress and the red curtains and everything like that visually it has echoes of the black lodge but also i felt that the way she was styled with her hair and her makeup it for me that had echoes of the the kind of like classical hollywood glamour of senorita dido Mm. in whatever that other place was um so it's it's kind of echoing all of these things and but but it's there in the real world well the real world of Twin Peaks anyway but there are very few shots of her with the audience yeah unlike the other performances there's very few sort of shots from a distance where you're seeing everything happening which does make me wonder what's going on I mean it could have just been the fact that when they were filming it they wanted to be very clear that it was a mime performance and they they didn't want the audience to know that was going on. There's something funny about the whole thing and it's not just that Moby is in the background. (laughs) No. But also, I mean, looking at the lyrics of the song, um, No Stars, we've just had the monologue from the log lady talking about the electricity among the sea and the stars glowing around the moon, the glow is dying, what will be in the dark that remains? So it, it's a thematic continuance of what the log lady was talking about. And it, it, it does feel very sad. It feels like something sad is happening. Hmm. But we just don't know what it is. Maybe, I, maybe because with no Cooper, we've lost that connection. Yeah, but I do wonder if, although this seems like potentially a slightly undercooked episode, I think that maybe part 11 might pick up directly from here. Because hmm. I think something has happened now. And... I think we're going to find out what it is and it's not going to be pleasant. And it's going to be some influence of the lodge activity in the real world, which is going to trigger potentially the series of events that might drive the final eight episodes of Twin Peaks The Return. So that's it for Time for a Cherry Pie and Coffee Part 10. I thought this episode might be shorter than normal, but it turned out I was completely wrong. <laughs> I don't know how we ended up 
with this long an episode from this short an episode. We're very, very sorry. But we hope you've enjoyed listening to it. It's been fun to ramble on about it, actually. And certainly I think we've got a lot more out of it by watching it and trying to discuss it and make sense of it. As with all our episodes, thank you for all the support. And it's been great to interact with so many new people on Twitter as well. Talk about all the theories going around and to really feel like we're part of the big global Twin Peaks community. Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, it's at TFCAA or on the website it's timeforcakesnail.com or there's a Facebook page to Time for Cakes and Ale. And if you've got a spare five minutes uh, and you're on iTunes, why not leave us a review? <laughs> go on, go on. Yes, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very nice. Yeah, that's it for now. We'll see you again next week for part 11. Yeah, goodbye. Goodbye.